Developing Tomorrow's Leaders is a podcast that is all about educating, supporting, and inspiring the next generation of leaders. Your host, Antoine Thompson, or Coach T, has over 35 years' experience of educating, supporting, inspiring, and enhancing the lives of many young men and women. Join him as he talks with business owners, educators, coaches, athletes, and others when they share their insight, experience, and passion for developing tomorrow's leaders. Welcome to another episode of Developing Tomorrow's Leaders. Today is all about youth mental health, and I'm super excited to have the neurodiverse teacher, and we'll get her name in just a minute, but a little bit more about her. Her areas of passion, expertise, and research focus on examining adolescent mental health impairments in the educational environment, and she's well-versed in the needs of the neurodiverse brain. Additionally, her professional experiences include in-class teaching in the secondary levels and designing and directing specialized programs for secondary students with mental health needs. She holds a doctorate of education in mind, brain, and teaching from Johns Hopkins University and a master of science in special education from Johns Hopkins University and a certificate of educational leadership and administration from Hood College. And I have a high school diploma. Currently, she's an adjunct professor at Townsend University in special, oh, excuse me, in secondary and special education graduate programs and works as an education consultant to families and education technology companies. She's a national board certified teacher, exceptional needs specialist, and holds an advanced professional educator certificate. Please help me welcome Dr. Kristen Eccleston to Developing Tomorrow's Leaders. How are you doing today, Kristen? I am well, and thank you for such a lovely introduction. And let me say, I am proud of you and your high school diploma. That is an amazing feat, <laughs> and I never want anyone to ever bring anything like that down because that is amazing. No, you're absolutely right. You know, it's funny you say that. For years, I was always beating myself up about that because I have an older and younger brother, and they both mm -hmm. have college degrees. And they, you know, it took me years. Like, you know, college is not for everybody. I tried it; it just wasn't for me. And I went on to be successful anyway, because I learned along the way. And I'm proud of my School of Hard Knocks education. Good. good. Right? And I'm, my brother is like that. He was a Marine. He was in Desert Storm. He never got his college degree. And for a long time, he was more successful than, than all of us. I tell him I'm, I'm catching up on him now. But and you're right. It's not for everybody. It's the path that that works best for you. Absolutely. Now, I know that you don't mind me calling you uh, Kristen, but... We know I knew you were coming on. I'm like, you know, I get the chance to do something I've watched for years. And I used to always watch these news shows where they inter introduce or interview doctors mm -hmm. and they'd always go, well, doctor, tell me. <laughs> so <laughs> we're going to I'm going to do that some today. That's just, just a great opportunity. Then again, like you say, I'm the host. My show, I can do it like that. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> great. So the first thing I really want to ask you about is what is neurodiversity? That is a great question. And it's a question that I get often, which I'm I'm always happy to answer. And it, it reminds me how much I'm immersed in it. And I forget that not everybody is immersed in it. So neurodiversity is a term that encompasses people who have autism, who have ADHD, sensory processing disorder, auditory processing disorder, dyslexia, dyscalculia. Uh, it, it, the list goes on. So it's any of those types of neurological aspects that make your brain work a little bit differently than someone who is neurotypical. Um, that's neurodiversity. So it's kind of an all-encompassing term for all of those different diagnoses that fit in that neurodiversity realm. And I say diagnosis instead of disorder because so many of them have 
disorder in them, but I don't see them, any of them as a disorder. I see it as a different way that your brain processes information. So I like to put that out there because so many people have such negative connotations of having ADHD or having autism when really it's just your brain's way of looking at the world in a different way. Yo, yeah, I'd love that because there's there's been a couple of kids I work with in my nonprofit and um, one of them now currently um, he has autism, but this kid has a heart of gold. He has a drive. He has a determination and he lights up my day because of how connected he is, not just with the sport, but with me. Because mm-hmm. ha- we have a special relationship. I'll get a, a message on Facebook. He'll send me a Facebook message. It's a video of him working out, letting me know he's working out. And then when we have our open gym sessions, at the end of it, when he leaves, he'll come over, not only thank me, but he'll give me a hug every single time. And you, like you said, it's not a disorder, but... Mm-hmm. It is traits and characteristics that more people need to have. And there's an appreciation that I see in that, in him. I love that. And, you know, so many more people are neurodiverse than we realize or that they even realize because neurodiversity has a lot of negative connotations with it. Um, there's some there's a study that's been done that shows that upwards of 3000 negative messages are given in a day to a child in school who is neurodiverse. I myself in neurodiverse. Uh, I had ADHD. I didn't get diagnosed till I was 30. So I went my whole life in in school, not having any idea that I was neurodiverse. And you get messages like, well, you're so smart, but if you just tried a little bit harder, if you weren't so lazy, if you paid attention better, if you got your head out of the clouds and you start to see yourself as something being wrong with you. And, And a lot of these kids see something being wrong with them, um, or they never get diagnosed. And so then people who are not diagnosed and don't know that they're diagnosed, tend to mask or think that there's something wrong or that they're not capable of different things. When in reality, a lot of people who are neurodiverse are your entrepreneurs, your people who are very creative, your people who like to come up with new concepts or ideas. So there's a whole realm, I think, of people out there who are neurodiverse and don't even know that they are because it never got diagnosed. And most of their life they spent trying to mask it. Maybe they realized something was going on and something wasn't the same as their peers, but they masked it because they didn't want to be that different kid or stand out or be seen as um, I used to think that I was stupid and I was trying to hide that from my peers. And again, it's because your brain does things differently and school is not always the most friendly environment for a child who has a brain who likes to see things differently. Yes. And it's also about that development stage as well. Mm -hmm. Right. So when you talk about the masking part, it's also, I think it it, it obviously affects self-esteem and confidence, right? Oh, a hundred percent. It does all the time. And, you know, it impacted mine. So a lot of how I speak from, I'm coming from my own personal journey, but I have found the more youth that I talk to either people my age or even young adults right now all experience the same thing. And they all feel so alone because it is impacting your self-confidence. And because it's impacting your self-confidence, you don't want to be seen as different, especially young people. Nobody wants to be different. Nobody wants to stand out from the crowd because I think everyone's afraid. Will somebody make fun of me? Will somebody think I'm weird? And so it does impact your self-confidence because you recognize that my brain is not working like everybody else's. But I don't even know that your brain isn't working like everybody else. I think there were a lot of neurodiverse individuals, but school is not set up for people who are neurodiverse. It is a very neurotypical one size fits all box. And 
you get a lot of your messages based off how you're doing in school, right? How your teacher says that you're doing, what your test score looks like, what your grades on your report card looks like. And if you're just constantly getting this negative feedback, then you start to think, okay, I guess I'm not capable. I guess I'm not that smart. I guess, you know, something's wrong with the way that I'm learning when in reality, it's the system. It's not so much you as a learner. Yeah. But that sets up the question of what happens at home, you know, because they're bringing that home just based mm -hmm. on what you just shared. Well, I'm getting all this negative feedback. So this must be me. I can't do it. Mm -hmm. But are parents aware, you know, with the families you work with, are you able to kind of share, share that with them so they kind of understand, hey, you know, this is a two way street. The school may be set up a certain way, but we can combat that at home. You know, I, yes and no. I think we have come a long, long way. And so I think a lot more families now are more aware. What is ADHD? What is autism? What does that look like? What does this mean? Okay, I'm going to get an education advocate like myself involved. You know, what kind of services and supports can I put in place for my child? So I think there's a lot more awareness than there used to be versus my parents who were great. They were very supportive. But ADHD, especially in females when I was younger, was not a thing. I mean, ADHD was reserved for hyperactive little boys who everybody thought their parents were just letting them run amok, which was not the case at all. So it didn't get identified. So when I was getting constant messages of your child is gifted, but their head is in the clouds, and if they were just a little less talkative or if, you know, they uh, they focused more, they tried a little bit harder. I think my parents were like, well, those are the experts. They're the ones who must no. So yeah, Kristen, you need to try a little bit harder. Yeah, Kristen, if you, you know, if you would, wouldn't be as lazy. So I don't think that my parents were not trying to be supportive in my generation, but it was one of those things where there wasn't an awareness, there wasn't the knowledge and they were reliant on the schools as being the experts. And so they were kind of reinforcing the messages the school was giving me, not because they were trying to be mean or not supportive of me, but they didn't understand what neurodiversity was. They didn't know what ADHD was or that it was even a thing versus now, I still think you have some parents who fall into that category, but there's a lot more knowledge. There's a lot more awareness now. And I think parents know to at least seek help or schools are at least sem I'm going to say semi better about identifying some of these things. He was, as I hear listening to you say that, something popped in my head. And I'm, just, I'm going to say it because I want to get, I'd love to get your reaction to it. Mm -hmm. You're right. Parents are becoming more aware. Yes. <clears throat> but do we have those that go to the extreme and try to be the experts in that process? Yes. So there's a couple different ways I, I could go down this road with it. Yes, there are parents who feel like I've done a good Google search. So I am just as knowledgeable as you who has spent a decade learning about this in school. So yes, I do run into that on occasion. Um, I even run into that with lawyers. Sometimes if I'm on the opposing side who want to take a dec decades worth of my, my learning and try to come up against me. And I'm like, guys, I'm not going to question you on law stuff. So let's not question me on, on some of these things. So yes, there are those Google detectives who feel like a good article, um, replaces 10 years of studying a particular subject. And I do run into that. And then I run into parents who are very open and honest who I have no idea. This is completely overwhelming. Please help me. Any advice, guidance you can give me, I'm completely open to it. And I will say that is probably more of what I run into than parents telling me. But I think too, if you are a parent who is dealing with a child 
who is showing any kind of deficit or hardship, you do want to become as knowledgeable as possible. And so sometimes I think it's in a good place. So I don't question parents. If they come to me and they go, I've done this research and I've looked at this, I always, okay, tell me what you know. Tell me your understanding. I, and I do my own investigating and research as well, too, because I, I understand the passion that they're coming with to the table because that is their child and they love them and they want the best for their child. And especially if you're trying to navigate any kind of special education process, it is not an easy process. It's like having its own language associated with it. Uh, and so I, I understand where parents are coming from and, and trying to make themselves knowledgeable. But I also have parents too, who sometimes I think they're very adamant that they think that their child is dealing with a certain um, disability or diagnosis or different things. When in reality, there is some parental structure that is going on there too. And it's hard as an education advocate, because you didn't hire me as a parent coach. You didn't hire me as to helping you with your parenting aspect. But sometimes I'm having conversations with parents when they come to me and in my head, I'm internally screaming like this. It's this is not what the issue is. The issue is really this. And it's really because this structure at home is really, really impacted. And I, I think a lot of times it comes from a place of love. And, and I'll give you examples so you know where I'm coming from. I'll have parents all the time where a child just will refuse to do things or will not invest their time into things. And. The parent is really frustrated. But what I learned through talking with the parent is they have really prevented throughout this entire child's life for the child to have to go through any kind of hardship or have to persevere or have to be resilient to something. Anytime the child all of a sudden was uncomfortable, the parent would step in and stop the child from having to go through whatever that experience was. And I get to a degree as a parent, you don't like when your child is hurting. You don't want your child to hurt. You hurt when your child hurts. So you want to stop your hurt. You want to stop your child's hurting. And what is happening, there's this great book, it's called Nation of Wimps. And what it talks about is when we don't allow our children, though, to have to be uncomfortable and to have to persevere or have to learn these resiliency skills, when they get older into that high school or that college level, and all of a sudden the world is not their friend, you know, they have their first major breakup, it becomes literally life-threatening to them because they don't have any of that resiliency or that perseverance because their parent has always protected them from those feelings of being uncomfortable. When they didn't get their way and the parent stepped in and stopped it, it actually was doing more harm to the child than it was doing good for the child. And I know I kind of went down on, on a tangent, but to, to answer your question of why it could go in a couple different places, that is also something that I regularly see with parents when they're having hardships with students who, I'm not saying that they don't have a learning disability or there isn't some neurodiversity going hand in hand there, but it's almost gotten escalated to a point because that factor is also at play. You've allowed your child not to have to feel any kind of discomfort since they were really, really young. And now at the high school level, it's gotten really intense and they're flat out refusing to go to school or they're flat out refusing to engage in different things that would be good for them. And you're continuing to support that because you're not allowing them to have to persevere and become resilient to any kind of discomfort. You didn't go off on a tangent because while you were saying that, I almost interrupted you and went, and let the church say, amen. Because <laughs> you're 100% correct. Um, that that's the, and it's actually the part that I was hoping you, you would go into detail on because I think our listeners need to understand that we know, you know, you as a parent, 
I'm not a parent per se, but I've been working with kids for 30, ooh, Lord, 37 years. And I love them like they're my own. So mm -hmm. I've seen things. I'm on the outside looking in, almost like on the fence. I see both sides and also know what the kids are missing by not being able to fail and become resilient through mm -hmm. the process of, of growing up. And, and I also appreciate parents wanting to protect their kids. I know my parents always want to protect my brothers and I, but I also know they allowed us to fail mm -hmm. and have to face the consequences of our actions in some sense, in some instances. And it's one of the things that I think it's become harder for parents. And obviously in this new age we live in, it's a little harder. They become more protective, but you just laid a great foundation for why they need to, you know, release them a little sooner and then allow them to come to them when let the kids come to you when they have a question. Because I know from my experience, that's what I hear more from them. It's nice to be able to kind of make decisions for ourselves and then reach out when we need guidance, direction or leadership. Absolutely. And I will actually say that most of the students who have had parents where they haven't allowed that resiliency are the kids who are. I hate my parents. You know, all my problems are their fault. And, and the parents are left being like, but I, I've done everything that I can to for the best. And I truly do that. I'm not beating up on these parents. I do believe with my full heart that everything came from a place of love, of a place of caring, from a place of wanting to protect their child. And I completely understand where that parent was coming from. So this is not a beating up on them by any means. If anything, though, I am, I am seeing as somebody who gets to kind of sit back and be a third party observer, though, I am seeing, though, in the end, though, the child ends up resenting you, even if they don't understand why they are resenting you, because I don't know that they have the capacity to understand, oh, my parent didn't let me fail, um, because I still see those kids who are resentful, who still expect the parent to come in and save the day and not have to make them go through any of these, these hardships, and, but yet they're still resentful towards the parent. But I think it, it, that's what it builds up to. It's like the kid recognizes that my life is in shambles and something is wrong and I don't know what it is. So I am blaming my parent for that. But in the meantime, I still want mom and dad to step in and protect me from having to go through any of, the, any of these uncomfortable experiences because you always have. And I, I don't want to start today having to go through these uncomfortable experiences. And what I try to explain parents when they are willing to engage me in this conversation is even though this is a high school or a young adult, you still have to think of it like a toddler at times too. If you know, every time you're going to set a boundary with the toddler, they're going to kick and they're going to scream and you've got to hold the boundary because the moment that you don't, then you have told them if I kick and I scream, I'm going to get what I want. So that next time when you go to set that boundary, they're just going to kick louder and scream longer until you finally cave in again. It's going to get harder every time you go to set that boundary. So it's best to set it now and stick with it, even though it's going to be uncomfortable for you. But you're going to you're essentially having to reverse a long line of psychology that has been going on, especially if you have let this go into young adulthood for this particular child. And I feel bad because I think this is a lot of where some of these mental health states come from some of these these children as well, too, is and we have projected this as a society too, right? Eighth place trophies and not protecting. Fail and to me, failure actually is not a negative thing. There right. is a lot of life lessons to learn from failure. Failure is an opportunity to say, OK, it didn't go the way I wanted to. So I'm going to switch gears and I'm going to try it this way instead. I think we have. We have projected that failure is such this horrible thing when, yeah, it, it, it's not always pleasant and comfortable, but there's actually a lot to be learned through failure and a lot to gain through failure as well. 
No, no, I think you're one hundred percent right. And then as you're saying that I was working on something and I came where I was talking just about that resiliency. And there was two examples that came up. One was Henry Ford. How many failed companies did he have before, you know, the Ford Motor Company came to existence? And then Colonel Sanders with Kentucky Fried Chicken, he was in his sixties before that uh took off and made him millions, billions or whatever. Um <laughs> uh, but no, you're absolutely right. And I think the uh example I was going to ask you about did you see the because you're on TikTok, right mm-hmm. did you see the one about the the kid the mom took the phone away from him no i did i saw a father who took an xbox and threw it in the pool but i haven't seen the phone one. no this was uh and i'll send this one to you because okay. um this was just the other day and it's all over and i was going to talk about him i watch like no that's you because the person that recorded wasn't supposed to share it but okay. he did but mm-hmm. now it's everywhere but the boy is 16 years old, 15 years old, I believe. Mm-hmm. The mom took his phone away. And what he did to that house, you would have thought five or six guys broke in that house and were looking for a a chip with $10 billion on it because he broke and tore everything up. He broke the toilet seat. He broke the granite counter in the kitchen. Um, he broke windows all because she took his phone. But I, I say that I mentioned the example because of what you talked about. Um, this obviously has been going on for a while mm-hmm. and he's always gotten his way, gotten his way. And it has nothing to do with why she took the phone away. It's just his reaction that she took the phone away. And this is something that obviously has been going on for years. And going back to your point about if you don't take care of it when they're toddlers, it's going to mm-hmm. be harder and harder as they become adolescents. Oh, absolutely. So from what I'm hearing, the child essentially held the parent as an emotional hostage. And and that is something that they learned through, again, that's that kicking louder, screaming longer type of mentality. And I'm sure in the past, in order for it to stop or for the house not to get destroyed, the parent just went, fine, here you go, just here, you know, because I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to deal with the mess of my house. But that's where you have to have strong boundaries, even when it, it, it hurts you as a parent. That would have been an immediate phone call to the police and, you know, having them, the, mobile mental health crisis unit come out and we're going to threaten hospitalization at this point in time because you've got to understand that there's some natural consequences to the way that you just responded and i know it's hard as a parent i don't think as a parent we we want to have to go to those extremes nor there's probably a level of like i don't want all my dirty laundry aired out to everybody at those extremes too but at some point, if it's getting to that level, your child has to recognize that there's going to be consequences. Like if they went into a bar later in life and, you know, didn't like the way that they were served their drink and they destroyed the bar, we're going to jail. We're going to go to jail that night. So we've got to learn that when we react a certain way, there are going to be consequences. consequences. Yes, absolutely. No, 100 percent. And to your point, I think the other part was the fear of physical harm. Mm-hmm. You know, when you I think about. Yeah. You, you do mm-hmm. you have the fear of that. Mm-hmm. I have had parents who, um, and I mean, this is going back years, but I, multiple stories, you know, where I will tell a parent like, well, if they're staying up all night on the computer, take the computer. It's, I mean, technically you own the computer, take the computer. Do you know what my child's going to do to me if I take that? Or I'll, you know, I had a, a child one time who just decided to set up camp and live in the middle of the, the living room. And that's just where they were going to live. And I said to the parent, I said, no, I mean, they go off to school that day, put all their stuff back in their room, take the Xbox, disconnect the Wi-Fi, whatever you have to do. And they were like, 
well, he's going to attack me when he gets home. And I'm like, guys, if it's gotten to this point, then then like there's some other things that are at play here. And and I'm never encouraging a because the parent, well, were you encouraging them to attack? I'm not encouraging a, for you to put yourself in a situation where your child is going to attack you. But if your child is willing to attack you over something like that, then there's a bigger issue at hand. And you cannot be afraid of your child. You then that's a hospitalization. That is a mental health factor that is now out of control. And you cannot be afraid as a parent. I'm sure there are people who will not agree with what I'm saying, but this is my point of view from somebody who has been that third party objector who has seen the same scenario over and over and, and over. over again for years. And unfortunately, you have got to take the power back as a parent and not in a, you know, beat your child type of way. I don't su subscribe to that. But if you're truly fearful that your child would do that to you, then there's other things that have to be addressed. And if you really think that that is something that is going to happen, then you've got to get mental health people involved in your life or a hospitalization involved in your life because there is a bigger factor at play than just your child not listening to your directions. You're right. And I'm amazed that you've had that a lot of experiences like that where parents have been in fear of their safety mm -hmm. because of their kids. And but again, I, I honestly believe and it's not and it may be that there's more to it that they couldn't control it when they were younger. Right. Mm -hmm. Which means it probably should have been addressed at a younger age. Um, and I, I think that's kind of what I wanted to ask you about next is kind of some of the, the things that you think parents could look out for if, you know, it's not something that's neurodiverse, but it may be more behavioral mm -hmm. based on your experience. From my experience, any child who has any kind of behavior, there's two, in my case, there's two types of behaviors. There's an externalizing behavior and there's an internalizing behavior. The internalizing behavior are the, is the children who you don't know something is going on because it's all happening inwards. But so we're kind of focused more on our externalizing behaviors right now. The kid who's willing to throw a tantrum and break things or, you know, the parent is physically concerned for, for their safety. And I always believe that every behavior Every behavior is coming from an emotion. So even, even if you're experiencing that behavior outwardly or inwardly, it's coming from some type of emotion. And there is a root cause to it. The root cause is not always blatantly obvious, but there is a root cause to every behavior. Students who I've worked with in the past who would get really aggressive and they would throw chairs and essentially destroy a classroom. When you finally got them into a place where they were available for processing, and I say available for processing because there's a time and a place to make a child be available for processing, usually not immediately after destroying the classroom. But when they're available for it, you'll usually find that, you know, there's stuff going on in their life, either at home or, you know, stuff that they've kept bottled up for a really long time. Or this teacher said something to them and has been saying something to them for some time. And today was finally the straw that broke the camel's back. But there's usually always a root cause to the behavior. And I feel that way with young kids all the way up to older kids who are outwardly showing their behaviors. There's a root cause to it. And you have to get to whatever that root cause is. Is it attention seeking? Because, you know, mom and dad work all day and... They, I get, and I get it as a working parent, you get home, you're tired. Maybe your attention isn't there. Maybe there's a bully at school who is, you tell anybody I'm going to make your life worse. And the child is, has internalized it, but now it's coming outwardly. But there's always going to be some root cause to the behavior. And you have to figure out what that root cause is. So I always feel like the first place to start is trying to get your child in a place to just talk to you and say, Hey, what is going on? What makes you feel like the only way that you can get my attention is, you know, to, to break my base or to break this lamp or whatever it, it might be. 
what is going on and see if you can get the child here. Because most of the time, I think we're so hung up on the punishment aspect of it. You've done this bad thing and I'm going to just punish you for it or I'm not going to punish you for it. I'm going to ignore you, whatever it might be that we never actually let the child tell us what is the thing that made you feel like this is what you had to do in order to express yourself. So and even if it seems really small or, or, you know, insignificant, and I'll throw my son under the bus a little bit on this, like sometimes he'll get upset about stuff. And I'm like, what? this is ridiculous. But you have to remind yourself as an adult for a child through their eyes, that is their world. Like whatever's going on at school or with a peer, like that's the biggest stuff that is happening in their day-to-day life. So that is going to be big feelings and big emotions for them. So validating the feeling, understand, okay, I understand where you're coming from, but have you thought about, you know, if this happens again, here are other ways to problem solve. Here are other ways to get attention. And trying to help teach your child alternative ways of getting that attention rather than having to feel like you're destroying something or let's scream into a pillow or let's find a healthy way. Let's get a punching bag or scream into a pillow. What are some healthy ways? If that's how you feel like you've got to get out this physical energy, let's find some alternative and healthy ways. But then we still need to talk about whatever it is that led you to feel like that's what we needed to do. But I think what happens sometimes is these kids can, and I've seen them firsthand, you can have some epic meltdowns. And as a parent, it can be incredibly overwhelming, or you can have worked all day and you can be really, really tired and and you're not sure what to do with it. And it's just easier to let them kind of like burn the energy out and then they're calm and and you move on with your life. But unfortunately, eventually that little child becomes a big child. And then that's when I think the parent finally goes, this is out of control and I need help. But we are now 10 years past when we probably should have first addressed this issue. That is some, you know, a lot. No, 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 no. I'm glad you shared it. No, thank you, doctor, for sharing that. (laughs) (laughs) There was an experience I had about mm, probably four or five months ago. Mm -hmm. Now I think you'll appreciate this one. So this young lady, she was coming taking private basketball lessons with me. Her mom was bringing her, single mom. Mm-hmm. And this one particular day, they come in the gym, and both the mom and the daughter have been crying. They're both emotional. I'm like, wow, this is, so you guys okay? She goes, yeah. And the mom shares with me that the daughter had been disrespectful to her at home, you know, just intentionally doing things to aggravate the mom and agitate her. And I said this in front of the mom. I said, and you're rewarding her by bringing her to a basketball lesson. I said, I'm a coach, but I'm also a mentor. I'm not rewarding her for misbehaving uh, mm-hmm. and disrespecting you. It doesn't work that way. You have an hour. And I asked mom, you mind if I talk with her for a minute? Just kind of figure out to your point, try to get to it. So we sat and talked. And mom sat there. She didn't leave and sat mm-hmm. there. Long story short, there was an emotional reason behind it. The father lives in another state. She only gets to see him twice a year. She was missing him, wanting to see him. The mom couldn't afford to send the daughter to see the dad. So this was her way of lashing out. Well, if you won't give me that, see my dad, this is what I'm going to do kind of thing. And by the time I finished, I felt like I had just given a therapy session to both of them. But to your point, it was like, I'm glad I did that. Mm-hmm. instead of just going, no, you can't see you leave because they both were left just as upset as they, when they came in. And that was one of those ones where you're absolutely right. You just have to sometimes ask the questions, let them speak. The girl, she's not a girl of many words. So mm-hmm. it took almost a whole hour, 
But I think it was about the caring part, knowing that somebody cared enough to find out why she was upset or why she was behaving that way. And I know that the mom appreciated the fact that I took the time to do that because she even opened up, shared some things. I was kind of like, look, I'm, I'm here for your daughter, but you want to share with me, that's fine. If it helps both of you, I'm all about it. Mm -hmm. But that just kind of goes along with what you were saying. I just wanted to share that with you. No, I'm glad I'm glad you did. And it should that there was a root cause to essentially what what the child was feeling and what caused the issue. And, and I have found, too, and this is something I share with teachers on a regular basis, is I once had a student who it took me two years to develop a good relationship with. And I mean, he put me through the ringer and it would have been very easy for me, you know, after a couple of times to just wash my hands and be like, I'm not dealing with this. But what I try to remind teachers sometimes is sometimes you have children who have had a lot of trauma, a lot of trauma in their lives. And this particular child had, I mean, I, I won't go too far into it because I don't want it to divulge who this person is, but this child had faced a lot of things in his life. And so essentially he had learned that adults were not trustworthy, that adults would do him dirty or adults would abandon him in, in different ways. And how was I, a stranger essentially, going to be any different than the adults being his parents who were supposed to be the, the core people in his life? How am I going to be any different and not abandon him? So sometimes I feel like children will do things even when you feel like, what could, what could possibly be the root cause of this, Kristen? This kid is just being nasty to me and I cannot come up with a root cause. Well, the root cause is they're testing you. Are you going to be like every other adult in my life who is going to abandon me when things get tough? Or are you going to stick through me? And it took me two years of showing him that you can keep doing whatever you're going to do. I'm not going to give up on you. I'm not going to give up. you. I'm going to keep being there. And then by the end of those two years, I had the most beautiful relationship with this kid. I did. I loved this kid. I think this kid loved me. I mean, I had a great relationship with this kid. The kid would talk to me. We would talk through things. I, you know, I'm a hugger as long as, you know, as always gets you in trouble with teachers sometimes, but I always appropriate in front of people, but I'm a hugger. When right. a kid needs a hug, I'm giving you a hug. If you, if you need it, that's just where I come from. And, and I just saw that this kid, he trusted me because he showed, okay, I put this woman through the ringer and she didn't wash her hands of me. And so I, I remind teachers sometimes that when you're facing kids like that, sometimes it's a test for you. I have seen this too with um, a lot of families that I work with where the child has been adopted and all, even if the child was adopted, you know, when they were three months old and doesn't have any memory of having been adopted, all of a sudden one day, usually around the time of puberty, there's like this light bulb that goes off and goes, somebody abandoned me. Even if they don't remember it, it's somebody in my life who are my biological parents who should have been the people who care for me. Even if I have this beautiful, a beautiful adopted family who has done nothing but stand by me and treat me wonderful. There's still this like light bulb that goes off one day that goes, there's been this level of abandonment. And then they start putting their adopted family through the ringer. But again, I look at it as a test. This kid has been through this level of either trauma, like the kid who I taught who remembered it, or children who've been adopted who they don't remember, but there's this knowledge or awareness of it. And it's a test for you now. Can you pass this kid's test that you're not going to be one more adult in their life who has abandoned them or done them dirty? And it's difficult. If you're the adult on the receiving end who hasn't done anything wrong, it can be really, really hard. And I made mistakes along the way when I was working with that child. I did. I did things that probably I didn't handle it right because my frustration got to me. But I would come back and I'd apologize or I would talk through it with the child because ultimately I had to realize that it's a test for me 
to make sure because this kid is they're trying to protect themselves. That's really what it comes down to is the child is protect trying to protect themselves from any kind of any further trauma, abuse, damage or abandonment. And as you're talking about the adopted part, um, I was actually my older brother and I were adopted. Um, my mom met married our dad. I was about three years old when that happened. And as you were describing that, I'm thinking I was thinking about my 12, 13, 14, 15 year old self. Very fortunate that I didn't go through that, partly because I knew the trauma that my biological father inflicted on my mom and wasn't there for my brother and I. So. Mm -hmm. My dad definitely was my protector when he adopted us and kind of moved on. But I can totally understand the, the flip side of that. You know, had I not known and my older brother's always he's a year older, but he's always mm -hmm. been that protector. And I think he helped me, I guess, to put me in a situation where I repressed some things that went on during that time. And he still won't share them with me. And I'm 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 fearful, kind of like you, even older we get, sometimes that light bulb goes off, that light mm -hmm. bulb's gonna go off. But you make very uh, interesting points. And, and that the part I love the most is that we as adults have to understand that kids are developing. We've developed our brains are fully developed by the time we're in mid 20s, right? Mid to mm -hmm. late 20s. Correct. Yes. They're still growing. Every year is an experience for them. Every year is an exper experiment with them in their social lives, their academic. I mean, you name it, athletic, whatever it may be. There are different aspects of their lives that are challenging and they're highly influential. And I think that's the other thing that we fail to uh, realize too, is the influences at school mm -hmm. come home. The influences at home go to school and that's vice versa. So I think that that's another thing. So your point's uh, very valid in that we have to be patient. And I think that's the key word is patience. And, uh, and in the, the, the world we live in today, not a lot of us have it or we're not exhibiting patience. And kids are realizing that they're lashing out more. I mean, you look at the headlines. I mean, kids are kind of and I wouldn't say going off the deep end, but there are not enough people that are stopping and doing what you're doing and taking the time and realizing, hey, I'm not throwing my hands up because you're worth it. And then however long it takes, I'm going to be here for you. And and I'm thank you for saying that because but you know I was once a newbie in the teaching world too and and I get where your frustration as an adult can come from I I can remember my first year of teaching when the, a kid first kind of talked flipped to me and I was like who do you think you're talking you know what I mean I'm this 22 year old who demands respect type of thing and, and it wasn't until I made those aha realizations that we just talked about and I I've noticed even when I work with veteran teachers that they even sometimes haven't come to those aha moments that oh well now that you're you're saying this to me this makes sense and you know maybe the kid isn't lazy who has their head down maybe they are homeless or you know they care for all of their siblings at home because mom's a single mom and they make sure everybody gets fed and homework and bathe and there's not a lot of time left for them but i i think we sometimes don't stop to understand what that person or that child is walking through in their life we just make assumptions we you know we all have personal biases Every single one of us, I think people hear personal bias and they think it's a bad thing. It's not. We all have them. It's based off our our life experiences. But sometimes we have to stop and realize that our personal biases are not necessarily grounded in reality. Because if you just think a kid with their head down is just a lazy child, then you got to stop for a second. Because what is actually making that child put their head down? What story is behind that child that is leading them to feel like they need to put their head down? 
It could be a learning disability. It could be, you know, they're really gifted in their board. It could be because they take care of multiple children at home because they're helping mom out. So I, I think that sometimes we don't stop to try and understand somebody else. We just jump to our own conclusions and then take that as fact. Your work with teachers is just the kind of work with you do with them in one-on-one in, -on -one in group settings about understanding this with uh, their students? Sometimes I do. In my education advocacy work, oftentimes I am seen as the bad guy, right? I'm somebody who's coming in and saying, here's all the things you're not doing, guys. But every now and then I have a great principal or a great school who, who recognizes the skill set that I have and goes, please, we want to know more. We want to understand more. And I love it when I have a principal or a school team that's willing to do that because as somebody who has been a classroom teacher, I know what they are going through and, and everything I'm trying to share with them is not to beat up on them. It, it's just to essentially provide some enlightenment of let's look at it from this perspective instead of this way so that it'll hopefully make your job a little bit easier too. You're absolutely right. It's always about how you present it. You know, when you're going in, because you already know when you walk in, they're like, oh, God, here we go. I know it all trying to tell us how to do our job. Yes. Right. And in reality, that's not the case. And it's always about setting that that foundation that that you know, on that platform going, hey, listen, I'm here as a support for you. Yeah, you know, I want you to be as successful in the classroom as you possibly can be. And some of the things you're going through, I can assist you with. And that's the only reason I'm here. And I know that with your experience, I know you do a great job with that. But, uh, but this has been great, great, great conversation. Now, I wanted to share for our listeners that are, uh, because we do have this on audio and video, but uh, Kristen, excuse me, Dr. Eccleson's uh, <laughs> website, the neurodiverseteacher.com. That's www.theneurodiverseteacher.com. And her email address is eccleston.education at gmail.com if you want to get in touch with her um, she would love to hear from you and i will uh, have one other question for you i've asked all my guests and that is to name uh, a person or persons that have been influential in your life oh wow a person or persons i have to say um i'll go from a professional route the people who have been influential in my life and that has been um Dr. Joshua Muncie, who was my first, uh, one of my Ritzies, which uh, Ritzie is a, a, a head of the special education department when I was an up and coming special education teacher. He really gave me a lot of confidence in myself and always really fed that I was in the business of children. And it was always obvious that I was in the business of children, which meant a lot. And then I also have to give Dr. Leroy Lee Evans um, credit to. He was my principal during my last teaching experience in the classroom when I created the, the mental health program for high school students. And, and his guidance is just something that I will always be incredibly grateful for. He always pushed me to think outside the box. Uh, I think when I was dealing with a school district that was trying to kind of shut down my pipe dreams, he was the one who was encouraging me to keep having them and to keep thinking forward and to keep building and to keep growing. And so um, I'm really grateful that in my professional experience, I had two people who really built up and encouraged me because I definitely had professional experiences where that was not the case. <laughs> so I am very grateful to Dr. Joshua Muncie and Dr. Leroy Evans for, for supporting me um, through my professional career and ultimately allowing me to have the knowledge and the confidence that I have today. And everybody has a different answer. There's no right or wrong. I just love to find out what inspires people and I think it's uh, for our listeners to know that, you know, it's not always people that are 
right in the next room in your house. Mm -hmm. It's not always them because they're an inspiration for you every day, obviously. But for what you do with your life um, and your passion, is sometimes it's outside influences that do that. And you just gave a perfect example of that. But I want to thank you, um, Kristen, for because what I do, one of the reasons I have this show is so that I can learn how to be a better mentor and a coach. And some of the information you share today and for our listeners are very valuable. And I think the biggest thing is something that I'm a, a big believer in, and that's patience and asking questions. And I think we'd be surprised at how quickly we can resolve a lot of things with doing those two things and being very authentic and genuine in our approach and not always trying to be too authoritative. Absolutely. And thank you for doing what you do. I know being a coach and a mentor is something that is so needed, especially for our youth. There's such a major youth mental health crisis going on. So having wonderful people like you in the life of a child right now is so important. So thank you for all that you do. Well, I appreciate that very much. And as always, I am Coach T. I'm here to educate, support, and inspire the next generation of leaders. Until our next episode, we shall see you. Coach T's new book, The Ultimate Guide to Success for Preteens and Teens, is the perfect resource for preteen and teen personal growth and development skills. It breaks down in detail his Sea of Success program and its applications in 10 key development areas. The program applies Coach T's three key components, simplicity, effort, and attitude. Order your copy today on Amazon, available in paperback and hardback. Stay connected with Coach T and Coach T's Corner on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and TikTok.